Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Jobs jamboree, U.S. employment surges as the hiring recovery continues. Branson versus Bezos, the Virgin boss determined to win the billionaire space race. And tax teamwork, 130 nations agree a global deal. Germany's finance minister gives his take. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Once again to First Move this Friday, where the fireworks ahead of the July 4th holiday weekend have already begun. Let's call it a star-spangled staffing spectacular. Wow, I managed it. 850,000 new jobs created in the United States in June. The first employment report in months to exceed expectations. Gains once again in leisure and hospitality as Americans continue to flock to reopened bars and restaurants. Education, also a hot spot as state and local governments gear up for a fresh and new school year. And as the help wanted signs stack up, so do wages. We saw a 0.3% rise in average hourly earnings month over month. That came in as expected. But of course, plumper paychecks are great for workers, but less transitory than other inflation components. The inflation fairy, wary Federal Reserve will be watching but at least for the time being. Investors implauding these new signs of strong growth. Stocks around the world looking red, white and green, with the S&P set to push further into record territory. Europe, as you can see, also seeing gains too. A tougher day, though, and this is where the red comes in for Asian investors, with China and Hong Kong both falling almost 2%. There's a natural concern out there now that Beijing will be less forthcoming, I think, with stimulus support once the centennial celebrations are complete. Beijing today also, though, delivering a supplies blow to China's leading ride-hailing app, Didi Global. We've been talking about this a lot this week. Officials launching a cybersecurity investigation into the firm, which went public in the United States just a few days ago. Didi won't be able to sign up new users in the meantime. Shares a down 10% pre-market. So we have a lot to discuss. As always, we're on the job and we start with jobs. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, a stronger than expected number. Just walk us through some more of the details and good morning. Good morning. Yes, this is uh, very good news, uh, Julia. After a, a few months of, of missing expectations, as you noted, revisions also pushed the previous two months up slightly. Uh, good news for the leisure and hospitality sector. That was obviously the, the most beaten down during the pandemic. About 40% of the jobs added came in that sector, 343,000. Over half of those were in food and drinking places. That sector, though, still 12.9% below the numbers that we saw in February of 2020. Education was also up. There's some distortions there uh, because of, of the usual seasonal patterns uh, of hiring and layoffs uh, being uh, sort of messed up because of the pandemic. There's some, some interesting sort of inconclusive news in this as well. While the, the numbers of, uh, of, of jobs ticked up, the actual unemployment rate also ticked up to 5.9%. The number of unemployed people in the economy was 9.5 million compared to 9.3 million uh, in May. And the number of long-term unemployed uh, also up by 233,000 after coming down significantly uh, in May. So, so it's hard to draw firm conclusions, but overall, uh, very good news. I want to point to wages, though, because this is really important. Wages were up, uh, average hourly earnings up 10 cents month on month. Uh, that isn't quite the, the numbers that we've seen uh, in April and May, uh, which were 
which were a significant acceleration uh, on the first quarter of the year. But still, if you take the last three months together, this does show a significant increase in wages. And that is something that the Fed will certainly be, be watching. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? As you draw people back into the workforce, as we believe 26 states now have reduced those enhanced benefits. So far quicker. Those were supposed to roll off in September. You bring more people in, you risk having a higher unemployment rate. So to your point, I think that's a very um, important spot there, too, in context of the jobs that were added. Adding, what about the future in light of what I was just mentioning there, if unemployment benefits were perhaps keeping people out of the workforce, could we see further acceleration as we push on through the summer and beyond? Yeah, I think the the next few months, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the next few months will be crucial. Unemployment benefits uh, expire in all states in September. Some of them have already uh, cancelled them because of worries that they are keeping people out of the workforce. Also, of course, uh, in the autumn, children will start going back, many of them to, to full-time in-person school, which will relieve some of the, the childcare issues that people have. And if you look at the data this month, Judy, you do see, interestingly, some of those pandemic effects waning. I want to pull out some statistics for you. Uh, among those not in the labour force in June... Uh, the report says 1.6 million were prevented from looking for work due to the pandemic. That's down, though, from 2.5 million in May. And one really interesting statistic is, is about teleworking. In June, 14.4% of people teleworked. That's down from 16.6% uh, in May, but also down from more than 26% uh, that we saw last summer. So that shows that, that people are sort of not only going back to work, but also going back to work in person and you see those effects waning but i think it's worth remembering that this isn't just about a recovery this is about a reassessment a lot of people are looking for different jobs and those effects i think will continue for longer yeah great analysis claire great to have you with us thank you claire sebastian there all right now to my favorite story of the day the billionaires battling over blast off virgin galactic's richard branson wants to beat amazon's jeff bezos into space branson says he will be aboard a virgin galactic flight set for july 11th nine days ahead of the Bezos launch. Rachel Crane joins us now. Rachel, I mean, some part of me laughs because there have been people that aren't astronauts or trained in space. This is just literally a battle of billionaires. And some of my sympathies are with Richard Branson. He's been at this for a long time. That's right, Julia. Uh, I actually just spoke with Richard Branson moments ago about this uh, breaking news that he will be on this space flight uh, in just a couple of days. Uh, and, you know, he said that it was not that this uh, change, him being on this space flight, which was not planned originally, it was just supposed to be four mission specialists and Branson was going to be on the next test flight. But Bezos announced that he was flying to space on July 20th, which is the 52nd anniversary of the moon landing. So many people speculating that Branson was, you know, making this push to be on the space flight as a result of Bezos wanting to beat him into space. Branson, though, telling me that that's not what uh, motivated his name uh, being added to the flight manifest. In fact, saying that he would welcome Bezos to be at his historic flight. Take a listen to what Branson had to say. I would would love Jeff to come and see our our um, flight off when, when, whenever it takes place. Now I would love to go and watch him uh, go in his flight, and I think both of us will w- wish each other well. Um, and it really doesn't matter whether one of us goes a few days before the other. 
Now, Julia, this will be the fourth crewed flight of Virgin Galactic's uh, VSS Unity that uh, Branson will be joining. There will be two additional test flights after this one before the company starts their commercial operations. Branson telling me that those commercial operations will begin in the beginning of next year. But, you know, there have been over 600 tickets sold on Virgin Galactic's spacecraft. Uh, You know, they're also not cheap, $200,000 to $250,000 dollars a pop. Also, though, interesting to note that Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, they auctioned off a seat on that historic space flight that will be happening on July 20th, uh, which we sp- uh, which I mentioned earlier. And that ticket to be in that capsule went for $28 million. Now, that auction winner's name has not been uh, released yet, but we're all eager to hear who's the person that has $28 million and who was passionate enough about space to, you know, to plop it down to be in that capsule, Julia. Yeah, you could have got a cheaper seat perhaps on the, on the Virgin Galactic flight. I'd be furious now. I mean, the top case there, what, what did you say? $250,000, $150 million. Yes. Mm. I mean, that's partly reason, the reason why the share price is uh, spiking pre-market as well. I wonder if Jeff Bezos is going to take him up on that invitation to be on his flight or at least wave him off. Yeah, so I think Jeff Bezos will be doing a rain dance somewhere. Rachel <laughs> Gray, <laughs> yeah, thank we'll, you we'll so much. We'll have to much. see. <laughs> we'll thank see. You, thank you. Okay. Let me bring you up to to speed with some stories making headlines around the world, getting overexcited. Okay, American troops have left their main airbase in Afghanistan, bringing the U.S. one step closer to fully withdrawing from the country after 20 years. The sprawling compound has been handed over to the Afghan military as it continues to fight the Taliban. The militants are celebrating the U.S. departure as a, quote, positive step. CNN's Anna Coral. Corinne is with us from Kabul. Anna, I think a lot of people here emotional after 20 years for many reasons, some happy as I described there, some very sad. Mixed emotions, absolutely, and no doubt about it. So much blood and treasure has been spent in this country over the last 20 years. Two trillion dollars, if you want to put a a price tag on it. Uh, When it comes to human life, uh, more than 2,400 US soldiers, 1,200 coalition forces, uh, over 100,000 Afghan civilians have died during this conflict. And then there's tens of thousands of Afghan soldiers who have died on the battlefield and are still dying on the battlefield. Uh, The withdrawal of US and coalition forces, which happened from Bagram Air Base overnight and early this morning, uh, it certainly brings an end to America's longest war. Uh, But here in Afghanistan, uh, people, you know, are feeling a sense of abandonment. We spoke to Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, who is head of the, the peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban. And he said that if it was up to Afghans, the Americans would not be leaving. But this is the reality. And they have to rise to the occasion that the only people who can save this country are his fellow Afghans. But we are watching the Taliban, you know, take their offensive across the country, making you know huge gains particularly in the north. They're sending out this propaganda video almost on a daily basis, claiming that they're 
taking over more districts with Afghan forces either retreating or, or surrendering. Uh, so when you have these optics, uh, you know, they, while they haven't taken over any provincial capitals, there is a, a real sense of fear that the Taliban, you know, could potentially topple the government. And US intelligence report uh, last week suggested that could happen. Uh, and, and civil war uh, perhaps is in the future as well. Dr. Abdullah, Abdullah said that he is certain, certain that that will not happen, that the 300,000 Afghan forces who have been trained by the Americans, uh, that they are there to protect the city, uh, that the US is not abandoning Afghanistan, uh, that it's pledged $3.3 billion uh, to provide security assistance over you know, the coming year. Uh, but whilst this is the end of a, a chapter, uh, for America, uh, certainly for Afghanistan, uh, you know, this war-ravaged country, the conflict will just continue. Yeah, a pivotal moment. Anna Corrin, thank you so much for joining us on that. We're back after this. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. investors are gearing up for a 4th of July weekend filled with parades, picnics and hog dog eating extravaganzas. Investors already stuffed to the gills, perhaps from a full plate of important employment data. Futures are higher on the news that the U.S. economy added a greater than expected 850,000 jobs last month. Oil, in the meantime, relatively unchanged in the session as we await a decision from OPEC Plus members on whether to boost crude output. Their second day of discussions after the UAE reportedly objected to reversing production cuts yesterday. Meanwhile, 130 countries have agreed to overhaul the global tax system to try and stop companies avoiding taxes by shifting profits around the world. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called it a historic day for economic diplomacy. Quote, she said, we have a chance now to build a global and domestic tax system that lets American workers and businesses compete and win in the world economy. The accord still needs to be ratified by individual countries, but Germany's finance minister has already described it as a, quote, colossal progress. And he joins us now. Olaf Schultz is the finance minister and vice chancellor of Germany. And he actually joins us from Washington, D.C., where he's been for a meeting with the Treasury Secretary, among others. Finance Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome to First Move. As you said, I think everybody would agree this is a huge achievement. How confident are you that this can be agreed and implemented by 2023 without being watered down? I'm absolutely confident. We worked so hard the last years to get this solution. We worked in many fields, in meetings of the G7 finance ministers in the OECD and uh, in uh, the working groups of the G20. And now we will make all the progress and the agreements we are worked for so hard. At G7, we already did in London. Now with the framework of the OECD and 130 countries agreeing. And so it's absolutely sure I think that we will make it also in G20 and afterwards we'll do the necessary text work, which is not too big anymore. So you think G20 by 2023 or all nations by 2023? Because that is a lot of legislation to write. I think that uh, enough nations will participate up to then. 
and this will change the way how we tax corporates in the world. It is ending the, the, the race to the bottom we've seen in the past and it's also a very important message for our democracies because it is us now that can again weigh what is the right way of taxing corporates, what is the good moderate way to do it. We are have not to look at others and uh, what uh, others do who are uh, working very hard for profiting from tax evasion. This will end. Yes, teamwork and collection of nations doing this together is the answer. Um, so can I ask you as well about discussions regarding Nord Strom 2, the pipeline of uh, gas from Russia to Germany? Obviously a, a contentious subject, I would call it, between European nations, yourselves in particular in the United States. How close are you to reaching some kind of an agreement and the ability to move ahead on this? I know it's part of the discussions in the United States currently. We are working far, very hard to, to make uh, an agreement feasible which gives all the necessary um, certainty for the Ukraine that they will have a good future in, in, in the f a good future and for doing so we worked in the past making it feasible that they have a new agreement on grass transition in the Ukraine and uh, we will work that this will be the case in the next years and decades to come so that the Ukraine will continuously be part of the um, business of supporting Europe with gas. I mean, America's really blunt about this. They say that uh, Russian gas has strings attached and that it compromises European security. I is part of the answer here diversification of sources? Because that is something that, that you yourselves can control. Um, I all know that we have uh, uh, a lot of uh, transport to Germany and to Europe with gas. It's not just coming from Russia. It's not coming just from Russia via different transport lines. It uh, is also coming from Scandinavia, from the Netherlands and uh, from other places. And we are not just relying on gas. So it is uh, feasible to have a very pragmatic solution which makes it possible that a new support line will come, which is uh, linked with uh, Nord Stream 2, but that also other ways of reaching Germany and Europe uh, will be organized and will be continuously the case in the future. Pragmatism is a great word as well for describing how nations like yourselves have responded to the COVID crisis, be it the economy, be it inflation concerns. I know you're also there as well to meet with Jay Powell too. Uh, Germany's been lauded, I think, in, and you yourself for your response to COVID, the 130 billion uh, spending plan, I think. Um, is it too early to be discussing perhaps pulling back support? More prudency? Just looking at uh, Germany, we spend, will have spent in the end of the next year more than 400 billion euros extra debt for financing or activities against COVID-19 and this will have helped the economy. We'll see that there is a big uh, success in the economic development and there will be big, a better growth as anyone expected. And this is even so with the European Union where I and we worked very hard to make it happen that a common answer of the Union uh, is for the first time feasible to support those countries who have not all the means, for instance, Germany has. So I think we are now at a stage where we have to continue with our effective support for the economy because uh, it would be a mistake just to stop it now. But uh, on the longer term, yes, there will be a more normal situation. But now's not the time to be discussing withdrawing, reducing or re-establishing the debt break. Uh, now we are 
we have our constitutional framework, and this is uh, the debt, debt, break, debt break, as you say it, but um, we are flexible enough to do what we do, and this is what we did the last year, this year, and the next year, and it will help us, and we have a planned a very high in investment part of our budgets for the next years, so anyone can rely that we will, within our framework, be able to act. It's a productive spending. I think that's the uh, that's the message. It is a productive spending. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about inflation too, because I think many nations around the world are concerned. You've said, look, you think this is a temporary thing. It's it's transitory. But what's your message to people that are seeing rising food prices, rising food costs, to businesses that are seeing their input prices rise, and and they're afraid that this isn't temporary? What's your what's your message? I really understand all those people being afraid and this is why we work very hard to understand the situation I discussed not just with the experts in my country or the European Union but globally with many other finance ministers and with the central bankers and uh, all the scientists and there is a broad consensus that the development of inflation we have today is temporary we have to look at it this is our task but we can be uh, as sure as we can at this time that this is obviously something that is fo just following the crisis, having, having some special reasons we can an analyze very concretely, but all this together gives us the idea and the understanding that this is temporary and that we will come to a usual situation afterwards. I'll use your uh, second title as well, which is Vice Chancellor, and I'll use it for a purpose. Um, I think part of your, your leadership response on the economy in light of what the nation's been through on COVID sees you in the polls right now in a poll position, in the leadership position to be the next chancellor of the nation. Can I ask you what you think, what you believe would make you a great chancellor? Why you think you would be the right person for the role? I think that uh, my country has uh, two big tasks for the future that uh, have to be tackled by the next government. One is to work on respect, on the dignity of work, on cohesion, because I see that uh, all the Western societies have uh, the same task to tackle, to bring the society together again. And the second is how we can invest into our future and how we can make it that we will have a CO2 neutral economy by 2045 as we plan it without using this uh, amount of coal, gas and oil we do today, but our being still successful as a very successful industrial nation uh, with new techniques we are using and uh, with investing into the infrastructure and the production of energy with renewables in our countries. And this is a big task which uh, we are planning to do, which anyone understands there is a future for, 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 for the middle class people, for, for, for all the people working in our societies, which is as good as they want to have it today and are having it in many cases and they must be not afraid of all the changes to come because we have a plan. These are the two main questions. If I might add one more which is important for us, we want to work very hard to make Europe and the European Union more sovereign in its action and to have a better integration within the Union. As we see now fighting against the COVID-19 crisis and its uh, economic uh, outcomes, it was very, very good to see that for the first time there is a strong fiscal answer by the Union and this mm. should be a step and a message for the future. 
Would your um, plans also involve the continued joint borrowing in the EU in light of what you were saying there about unity? Are you comfortable with joint issuance of debt to continue beyond this crisis? We have decided to do something like this yet to fight against this crisis and now we have to do the next steps which are important for us and the next step is that we are taking the decisions on how we pay back the uh, debt that we took here and uh, this is about own resources for the union as the union already decided but this work now has to be done and this is what is what is our task we are working on now <laughs> yes the future remains an open question i think i can read between the lines on that one um you know the challenge here for you actually on the politics side is that your party itself the social democrats currently in third place would you be in favor of a grand coalition uh, with the christian democrats if that's what was required as you know i want to be the next chancellor and this is uh, why i worked so hard that the uh, polls for my party will become better as the polls for myself are very good so there is a good chance for having it and I'm really confident that I will have the request from the people that I should form a new coalition government uh, as a chancellor. Yeah and that you will comply with sir I, I see. Um, finally and this is a critically important thing that I know Germany is also addressed individually as well, but it's the response to vaccines in order to encourage and ensure that the entire world recovers from the COVID crisis. The IMF, the United Nations, the World Bank, they've all said that as much as the G7 nations have pledged in terms of financials and vaccine support, more is required. So are you in favour of providing more money in order to ensure that some of the poorer nations get vaccines and they get them quickly? We have to uh, use more money and as you know Germany is the second biggest donator yes. for the international programs uh, giving billions for financing what is necessary now and we are willing to do more if uh, we can do it together with others and also we are working very hard that uh, there is a lot of that, that a lot of vaccines are produced and could be uh, sent to all the um, countries in the global south for instance we have to give them the chance to vaccinate their people and this is something which is a task we have as hum as humans and uh, we have a responsibility not just for our nations but for the rest of the world and it's also important because if we are not doing this uh, we will have the problem that possibly mutations will come back with this uh, pandemic and then we will have to start again fighting against uh, the pandemic and so it is it is wise and it is something which is important from from a moral aspect that we support all the people in the world that they get vaccinated. Do all the G7 leaders share your sentiments, Finance Minister? Um, we have discussed this question intensely and anyone is all, all are saying that they want to support this idea. Now we are looking for the money and we are looking for the exports. Chasing, chasing for the money. Yeah, we are, we, are, we are asking all that they are doing a bit more for giving the necessary support. Please keep pushing, sir. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Olaf Scholz there, German Finance Minister and Vice-Chancellor. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday, the last day of trade before the long Independence Day weekend. And a rocket's red glare of strong jobs data is pushing Wall Street to fresh records. Just getting a peek at them there. Yes, the U.S. is reporting a further 850,000 jobs were added to the economy last month. That's the best monthly employment gains since last August for context. Strong wage growth too, which means no declaration of independence from our concerns about Federal Reserve tightening. The IMF is raising its forecast for U.S. growth this year, now calling for GDP gains of some 7 percent if Congress can pass new infrastructure spending and billions in further social spending. Lots to discuss. Joining us now is Christina Hooper, the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Christina, Christina, get my words out. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. What do you make of the jobs report, first and foremost? Julia, thanks so much for having me. A great jobs report, beat expectations by a lot, but keep in mind that we had weak job report jobs reports in April and May. Now, a lot of that was because employers had difficulty sourcing employees. We kept hearing that anecdotally over and over again. Um, So this is really exciting because it suggests that we knew employers were looking for for employees. Now more employees are entering the workforce. So that is likely to mean uh, a continuation of the trend towards normalization, that we're going to see less obstacles um, to employers getting back to work. And that actually should mean um, lower inflationary pressures, because a lot of why we've seen such significant wage growth is because employers have had to offer all these incentives and have had to increase pay to get employees back to work because we've had enhanced unemployment benefits. Um, Those are rolling off. Um, We've had child care issues. We've had fear of COVID-19. So there have been a lot of obstacles, um, but they are slowly working out of the system. And so this is a real positive. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's there's something counterintuitive about this. I like the idea of people being paid more for for the work that they're doing as long as it's sustained by the businesses involved. But your point about I think the inflationary pressures is key here, too. You sound very optimistic about the U.S. recovery. Oh, I am. This this should be called the great boomerang. What we saw was this incredible downturn last year, worse than the global financial crisis. And now we are seeing a very strong rebound. And really the difference, uh, of course, we had vaccines. Um, That was a huge catalyst. This was a unique um, calamity. And we had, of course, a solution that came very fast. I would say it's nothing short of a medical miracle. The other key component was enough fiscal stimulus. We didn't get that the last time with the global financial crisis. Yeah, they balanced it appropriately here. And while inflation and prices will go up, they're not going to be uh, problematic to the point where the Federal Reserve has to make a dramatic move to catch up. Well, I don't think we should be worried about GDP growth um, because the Fed is not looking at GDP growth. All we have to be worried about is employment and inflation because those are the two areas they're focused on. And so GDP growth can be strong. But if they view inflation to be transitory, um, then that's okay. And if they anticipate, it, you know, if they think that we're not anywhere near where we should be in terms of, of jobs, um, then we have a ways to go in terms of them being very accommodative. So this is a, a, an attractive picture. That doesn't mean the Fed isn't going to start to normalize this year. I think they will announce tapering, probably at Jackson Hole and started in the fall. But this is going to be ever so gently uh, and slowly that we normalize monetary policy. We often use this term in financial markets, which is Goldilocks, which means everything's going swimmingly. Um, I guess for an investor at this moment, then it's make hay while the sun shines. 
Well, I think it's all about what areas of the market to focus on. Mm. I think this is definitely a risk on market. I think stocks will outperform. And I think in the shorter term, we're likely to see cyclicals and smaller caps perform better, um, certainly in the U.S. Um, at, I think there are longer legs probably in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, at some point in the U.S., we are likely to see that rotation to growth and larger cap as in as the market starts to discount a slowing of this strong recovery, which is inevitable because this is, is a real burst of growth that's unlikely to be sustainable. Yeah, and one of the interesting things as well that you point out is that you favor Europe and you favor emerging markets too, which I feel is is good at the moment as we see some form of catch up relative to nations like the United States that managed to get the vaccines out there quicker, perhaps. But those guys, perhaps if we see an increase in variants, if we see inflationary pressures in particular, then emerging markets become um, an area to be very cautious about. So how do you find that balance? You just have to be very watchful. Well, I think you want to be very watchful. And of course, you have to look at more metrics because it's not just strictly about the economy. It is, as you rightly pointed out, about the virus. It is about vaccine distribution and it is about the creation of variants. Um, so it, it, it certainly is a situation where we want to be discerning, especially where it comes to emerging markets, um, where they have been uh, left behind in terms of vaccine distribution. Yeah. Christina Hoover, fantastic to have you and your optimism on the show this morning the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Have a great long weekend and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Shares in the Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi are sharply lower. Earlier, Beijing said the company is under investigation by the National Cybersecurity Agency. Under the review is complete. Until the review is complete, Didi is barred from registering new users. Paula Monica joins me now. I mean, wow, actually, was my response when I saw this release. Not even 24 hours after the company IPOs and they've got regulatory issues, big ones. Yeah, it is a stunning turn of events, Julia, for the ride-sharing giant, the rival to Uber in China. I think that the stock plunging so far this morning is a reflection that investors in the U.S. are now remembering that, oh yeah, Didi is a Chinese company that is operating in an environment where Beijing really seems to be increasingly willing to try and show all of these big tech entrepreneurs in China who's boss, so to speak. We've seen it with Alibaba and Jack Ma and Ant Financial. We've seen it with TikTok owner ByteDance. We've seen it with Tencent. So I don't think this is, in many respects, a huge surprise, but the timing is clearly a shock since you know we had all this fanfare about the big IPO just a couple of days ago here in the United States. And now all of a sudden the stock is plunging after a you know, pretty sharp uh, you know, a debut. Yeah, it just shows you, though, I mean, if I had to have picked uh, from a handful of different regulators that may have stepped in here and said, hey, we've got a problem with this, whether it's anti-competitive behavior, monopolistic behavior, um, cybersecurity risk, though perhaps I should have been aware of it, I most definitely wouldn't have had in my top three. But um, yeah, we're going to yeah. see because they're going to carry out this it, it, uh, this review. And um, you're agreeing with me, Paul. I like it when you do that. We'll move on to Robin Hood and see if you agree with me on this one, <laughs> because they've also applied to IPO. And for the first time ever, we have a sense of the numbers. Yeah, Robinhood is growing very dramatically. They have uh, you know lots of users. They're managing. 
a ton of money. But even though they were profitable, they eked out a little bit of net income last year, I think there are concerns about whether or not legal costs and other issues related to you know options eat into profits this year. And I think the biggest red flags that jumped out at me, Julia, in reading the S1, Robinhood is clearly cognizant of the risks that could be coming from negative headlines associated with all of the uh, you know bad stories that we've seen about the casino-like atmosphere that Robinhood, you know, their uh, opponents would argue they help, uh, you know, engender in the market with younger traders not necessarily knowing exactly what they're doing. We had that awful story about the 20-year-old who saw that huge negative balance and committed suicide. Robinhood admitted in the uh, S1 that they have settled with his family. That is not something that I think uh, is going to go away anytime soon. There will be continued criticism of Robinhood by larger financial institutions as well as regulators. So I think that is going to be a risk, even though the company is supposedly looking at a $40 billion valuation once they go public. Yeah, I mean, this is the context here. It's the, it's the size of the fines. I mean, $70 million was the settlement with FINRA um, that they made just before this IPO was announced. Um, but it obviously doesn't refer to some of the more frothy behaviour, the meme stocks and the challenges of um, the lawsuits that they've got to play with there. Um, I guess one of the other things that leapt out at me, Dogecoin was 34% of cryptocurrency revenues in the first quarter. So that tells you something about uh, what's going on in the crypto space too. We've got plenty to discuss on this, but we're out of time, Paul, so we shall reconvene on this. Also, please have a lovely weekend. Paul and Monica, thank you. you. All right, coming up on First Move, a terrifying scenario of a major cyber war will take you to Taiwan, where the threat from China is intensifying. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Rising tensions between Taiwan and China. Taiwan vowing to safeguard its sovereignty after Chinese President Xi Jinping claimed that reunification with the mainland is, quote, inevitable. It comes as Taipei accuses Beijing of carrying out large-scale cyber attacks, as Will Ripley reports. Prepare for war, the menacing message of mainland Chinese propaganda aimed at the islands of Taiwan. Military intimidation in real time. 28 Chinese warplanes entered Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Taiwan calls it the largest air incursion ever recorded. In this exclusive interview, Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu, tells CNN, China is engaging in psychological warfare. They want to shape uh, the Taiwanese people's cognition that Taiwan is very dangerous and Taiwan cannot do without China. More than 23 million people caught in the crossfire. A battle between Beijing and Taipei, a fight for their hearts and minds. I'm flying to the front lines across the Taiwan Strait to the small island of Jinmen, more than 200 miles from the Taiwanese capital, just six miles from mainland China. Jinmen is the only place in Taiwan that saw actual combat. During China's civil war ending in 1949, many buildings bear the scars. The fighting, ferocious. Nationalist forces fended off communist troops, effectively shielding Taiwan's main island, warding off a Chinese invasion. Jingmen people often say only those who experienced war can understand its horror. We have the right to say loudly, we want peace. 
This is a place we call Gaodong. Longtime tour guide Robin Yang takes me underground to one of the island's massive military bunkers, once top secret, now abandoned. He also shows me how China's relentless artillery barrage left the island with mountains of old shells. When the battle ended, the shells kept flying. Local historians say half a million of these landed on Jinmen between 1958 and 1978. But this was not artillery. These shells were full of communist propaganda. The beginning of what experts call a decades-long disinformation war. A war supercharged by social media. How dangerous is disinformation? The danger here is that because I think the main goal of all this disinformation campaign is to create chaos and create distrust. Is China doing this exact same thing in the United States? Yeah, definitely. And also in Australia, Canada, um, also Europe. Beijing denies disinformation warfare. China's Taiwan Affairs Office has previously called Taipei's accusations imaginary. Experts say the threat goes well beyond disinformation. The Taiwanese government says it's hit by 20 million cyber attacks every month. Targets include defense computer systems, finance, communications, even critical infrastructure. In information security, we believe World War III will happen over the Internet. Basically, every aspect of our life for which we rely on computers could immediately be turned off. Yes. Taiwan's major gas company, CPC, was hit by a major malware attack, a ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, which U.S. intel believes came from Russia, paralyzed the U.S. East Coast. Just imagine what what just happened in in United States. You you could do nothing. Cyber is a bigger threat, in your yeah. view, than nuclear weapons. Yeah, from my point of view, because it is happening every day. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, named cyber attacks a matter of national security. Back on Jinmen Island, this 30-foot loudspeaker spent decades blasting anti-communist propaganda to the mainland, a supersized reminder of how much things have changed. Will Ripley, CNN. Jinmen, Taiwan. We've requested a response from China's Taiwan Affairs Office and Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but have not yet received a reply. Okay, coming up on First Move, we take you to Thailand, where the nation's most popular island is finally reopening to international travelers. That's next. Welcome back into one of the most popular travel destinations in Asia, Phuket. And it's now reopening Thailand, welcoming its first vaccinated international tourists in more than 15 months. And the best part is people don't need to quarantine. Paula Hancock's reports. A big gamble for Thailand's biggest island, Phuket. The Prime Minister himself rolled out the red carpet for vaccinated international tourists that lead straight to the picturesque sandy beaches without any quarantine restrictions. In a surreal contrast to the year that's been and to the rest of Thailand that's mostly shut down due to rising cases and three days of record deaths, nearly 400 tourists from the Middle East and Singapore arrived under an experiment called the Phuket Sandbox, ready to hit the beach armed with sunscreen and COVID antibodies. What first thing you want to do? Eat some nice Thai food. How do you feel now? Very happy. There's a lot riding on their return and the island has been preparing, 
More than 80% of its population have been vaccinated with at least one dose. About 65% are fully vaccinated. I am quietly confident that the industry and the government has done all it can to make this sandbox scheme both safe and effective. An assurance echoed by Thailand's tourism minister. Looking at the nationwide coronavirus infection rate, we would say we are not ready. But if you focus only on Phuket, we've laid our groundwork for more than three months. We are 100% ready. The government estimates at least 100,000 tourists will arrive over the next three months, bringing in nearly $300 million in revenues, desperately needed on an island that relies on tourism. Still, some are not convinced that this is the right time. We are still uh, and very concerned among the people of Thailand that the Delta, uh, the Delta strain will spread in Thailand. But the sun seekers aren't complaining. Neither are the local business owners like Suzanne, who describes the past year and a half. Horrid. <laughs> we didn't expect the last wave to hit us the way it's, it's hit us. Tourism accounts for 20% of Thailand's GDP. For Phuket, it is 95% of its economy, which is why the Thai Minister of Tourism says it is a calculated risk worth taking. In 2019, revenue from both domestic and international tourism stood at about 95 billion US dollars. That shrank to near 20 billion in 2020, a huge drop. So while it may seem like a parallel universe, for now Thailand is pinning its hopes on Phuket while the world watches. Paula Hancock's CNN South Wales. And finally, on First Move this Friday, what better way to end the week than with dancing dogs? Okay, so if you're expecting a bit of my little pooch Romeo, I am sorry to disappoint you, but these are seven Boston Dynamics robot dogs who teamed up with the Korean boy band BTS for a dance-off. And as you can see, the boys are thinking their robo-dogs are pretty cool and not in the slightest bit creepy or a little bit terrifying. Now, in case you're wondering, Hyundai now owns Boston Dynamics and it's all part of their promotion for their electric cars. Romeo, where for art thou? That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at jchatterleycnn. I've been dying to say that since I bought my dog. Stay safe. Connect the world with Linda Kincardo. It's next. Have a great weekend. And Romeo, take it away. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.